Well, again, hey, <laughs> good to see you again. It's been a long, like, 45 seconds. Missed you. Uh, my name is John. I get to serve again as a pastor. If we've never met before, I just want to say thank you for being here. And uh, like Bryce said, maybe for, for some of you, this has been what you call a week. It's been tough to get here. And uh, what I want to say is there's probably someone next to you who maybe feels the same. So real quickly for the next 10 seconds, just turn to the person near you and just say, I'm really glad you made it today. Just real quick, just turn. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. I'm glad that you're here. Glad that you're joining. We're very excited that you're here. <laughs> so, all right, don't get that friendly, okay? That was a long 10 seconds. But it is really fun. Uh, again, this is such a joy, especially, let's just be honest, it's February in Michigan. We need to be around people and smile, okay? <laughs> because otherwise, we'll sink into a hole of Netflix depression and just sit in our house. And uh, that at least would be true for us. I remember a couple years ago, this is pre-kids, uh, obviously, because Lindsay and I found a show on Netflix and this doesn't happen all the time. We don't even have Netflix anymore because we were that addicted. But at the time, we had a Netflix account. And what happened is we would find a show. And it used to be your show was 30 minutes long with commercials. So it was about 20 minutes. And you remember this, this like decades ago. Remember this thing that used to happen? Like you had to actually watch it at a certain time? Like I remember that. And so when Netflix came out a couple years ago, we got our account. And I was fascinated that the episodes were not 21 minutes long. They were an hour long. And there was like 12 of them. And, and they didn't come out at a certain time. You literally could watch them one after another, after another, after another, times 12. Anyone else do this? Or am I the only crazy person in the room? Okay. I know some of you do this. You just, okay, thank you for your honesty. But it was interesting because this, this show came out and it was, we love kind of documentary series, or at least I do. And, I, and Lindsay loves me enough to watch them with me, basically is how that works. But we were watching a series called Making a Murder. Anyone watch this? Like the story of Stephen Avery, Manitowoc County. Okay, like really fascinating story. I spent some time in Wisconsin, kind of knew the area that they were talking about. I was like, man, I heard this show is just blowing up. Everyone on, on, online is talking about this. So we started to watch it. And, and yeah, we're, we're those people. Like two seasons, 24 episodes in. We were like, wow, that was quick. That was a, a very short 24 hours. We just wasted on Netflix. Uh, but it was amazing. But what struck me, about this. Some of you may remember the character Laura Nyrider. Now, she was Brendan Dassey's lawyer who was one of the people involved in this case, in this appeals case. And there's multiple interviews where what Laura said was just so profound. I kind of stopped. I was like, wow, did you catch that? Like, especially as a pastor, I was just like, man, she is speaking such truth. And one specific interview, they were talking back and forth and they were asking Nyrider, like, why is it so many people who are wrongfully convicted, who are completely innocent, who have nothing to do with the case that they're being charged against or in, why is it so many people end up just quitting the appeals process? Like it's a crazy percentage you wouldn't think of people who begin an appeal process for a conviction or a charge and end up just dropping it over time. Now you could say, well, that's because it, it's so hard or the process is strenuous or that, that's how it should be because some people maybe are doing that for, un, for an unnecessary reason. They're really guilty. But in this specific case, she made the comment. She said, well, I'm, I'm studying Brendan's case, who's a person pictured next to her here. And she said, I, I believe he was wrongfully convicted. But what happens to so many people in his scenario is that they, keep, they fight for so long, they keep pushing, they dump all of this money and resource into this and what happens is they end up backing out because people are used to living without hope. People are used to living without hope. If you ever have worked 
in any kind of social setting, whether you're a social worker or you've done some counseling or you've been through the fostering or adoption process, you're nodding your head. You get this. It's like people are used to living without hope. And as creatures, as created people, we die when our hope dies. Like it, maybe not physically, but internally we start to, to crumble and to fall apart. You and I were wired for hope, which is why when you look at the scripture story we've been looking at, God created us and we're in this garden, this, this beautiful relationship with him. And then Adam and Eve in their independent kind of decision say, I'm gonna play God. I'm gonna take the reins back into my own hands. I want the, the power to know good and evil. They take the wisdom back from God himself. They violate his one ask in the garden. And what ends up happening is sin enters and breaks this relationship. This, this gap is created where these people who are created in his image lose sight of what that was supposed to be and end up bringing sin into the world. We talked a lot about that the last couple Sundays. This Sunday, I want us to take the next step in the journey and talk about what it means to be redeemed. What it means to look at the cross, to look at this fundamental thing in the story of Scripture, this fundamental act that happens, and to look at how it changes literally everything about our spiritual life, everything about our ordinary life as well. So I want to take you to a really odd letter, if I can do that. I want to take you to Galatians. Have you ever been there? You know there's some weird stuff in Galatians. I want, if you have your Bible, uh, or if you just want to pull it up on your phone, the reference will be on the screen. But before we get there... Uh, the setting for this letter is Antioch. Galatia is a region, an area, a part of the Roman Empire. And in Antioch, Antioch is the third largest city uh, in the Roman Empire. It's beautiful. It's set up on this hill overlooking the sea. It's an incredible place. It was a port city. There was tons of trade and wealth and commerce that happened in the city of Antioch. It became very quickly the third largest city in the Roman Empire, kind of a dominant force. It's about 300 miles north uh, of Jerusalem, where a lot of the activity happened early on in the church. But the message starts to spread, and then they encounter some really interesting opposition to the hope message being spread. Read with me in Galatians 2. We're going to start in verse 11. So when Cephas came to Antioch, or Peter is another way to translate that, an apostle, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So there's already a problem here. Paul and Peter, these two leaders of the church, are at odds with one another. There's tension. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Gentiles is kind of a fancy word for outsiders to the Jewish faith. They're outside the fold of Judaism, and God's message was to bring them in. But there's some issues. Instead, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, talking about the Jews, right? They, we talked about this a few weeks ago, this physical act that was signifying that they had kept the law, that they were pure. And then verse 13, the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, this other church leader in the, in the area, was led astray. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We're going to quick pause there. What's happening in this letter, what Paul's trying to address, is that this incredible event had happened. Jesus had sacrificed himself for all of humanity. This beautiful picture of forgiving love, of suffering love. 
and then is raised from the dead. The Father raises Jesus from the dead three days later, breaking the curse of sin and death, breaking the curse of Adam's initial decision, setting people free. And then what should be the most hopeful message in the entire planet begins to spread around this Roman Empire with tons of opposition, obviously, but it begins to spread very, very quickly. But immediately what happens is the opposition is not primarily from Rome. It actually happens within. It's the Jews and Gentiles going back and forth saying, if you want to have real hope in Jesus, you have to do this physical surgery. And the Gentiles are like, hey, bro, I'm 45. That, you're not going there, okay? <laughs> I'm not doing that. Is, is what is, uh, I will find a different way, okay? Like, there's got to be hope outside of that one thing. And the Jewish people are like, no, you have to do this. And Gentiles are saying, well, you've got to adopt to our customs. You've got to adopt to our culture, our way of living. And over and over again, they go back and forth about how do you really have hope in Jesus, which is ultimately the, the, the argument here back and forth between them. So then he says this in verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified, catch this, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The word faith there has multiple layers, but one of them is hope, but by our hope in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be, ju may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, not by being a Gentile and figuring all that out, not by being a Jew and having all that stuff figured out, but by actual faith, placing our hope in Jesus and what he has done. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So there's no outs. Like if you add anything to the hope of Christ, you end up making it void. Verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified by Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, which they do, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? He's saying, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And catch this, what he says next. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. A verse you may know, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is crucifixion, cross language. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, catch this, Christ died for nothing. What Paul and Peter are primarily disagreeing upon is how do you really find hope? Is it in the externals or is it in the internals? Is it in being a Jew or is it in being a Gentile? Is it about how you eat and what you eat or how your body uh, currently is un, like shaped? And he's saying, no, ultimately the, the hope you have comes from Jesus Christ and what he has done. It is not about what you have done. It is, the gospel is void if it is about what you add and the temporary hopes you place onto the eternal hope that Jesus is providing. Another way to put it is what Paul and Peter are disagreeing about is ultimately people who want the benefits of the cross without the cost, who want the benefits of what Jesus can do without having to lay anything down or die to anything in themselves. Pastor Pete Cesaro says it this way. I want to just read this quote over you, and it jumped off the page to me in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. He says, we all want a spiritual life, but we prefer to be in charge of it and have it unfold according to our schedule and in our way. But following Jesus is not first doing things for him, performing for him. 
It is first listening to him speak and then doing what he says. See, this is very different paths to hope here. One path is in how you secure hope. One path is in how you add Jesus to your equation to find hope. And one is saying, I have no hope other than Jesus and other than the cross of Christ itself. See, another way to put this is the sooner I die to my own hope, the sooner I encounter true hope. The sooner I die to my own pursuits and my own chasing after hope, temporary as it is, the sooner I encounter true hope. See, once you get to the end of yourself, often that is where Jesus does his best work. When the kids are still sick, when the diagnosis hasn't fixed itself, when the business has closed, when the decisions are unclear, when the college path is still uncertain, it's in those moments Jesus invites us to say, where is your hope? Where ultimately do you find hope? And what Paul and Peter are disagreeing about is kind of the answer to that question. I was thinking about this culturally. Uh, it's no news to you that for the majority of the last two, three years, uh, the political tensions and divides have kind of raised up a couple notches. Anyone else feel this? Okay, just making sure I'm not the only one. And it's been interesting. It's not necessarily that the problems have gotten greater than how they were, but the, the political foray and the argument and the, the news cycles have become much more vicious. Like, I remember... This is going to make me sound really young, but, and I am. But when I was in high school, I remember the, the news cycle, for some reason, felt like it was generally the same thing, right? For the most part, no matter how, how many channels you flicked back and forth from, it was generally a very similar reporting structure and style. And now it's much more tailored to specific demographics, specific voting uh, populations. It's much more divided than it was. And what I find myself doing is when we look at some of these cultural issues we face, or even thinking about current crises in our world, I think too many times we expect the government to do the church's job. And when we expect the government to do the church's job, what we end up with is temporary hope solutions after temporary hope solutions. Like when we ultimately rely on people who do not follow Jesus to solve the things that Jesus only can solve, it's gonna end up exhausting us and causing us to be eternally frustrated because Jesus did not die for a temporary hope. That's not that Jesus doesn't care about the cultural issues you face and that I face. He, I think he really does. And I think scripture has a lot to say about what we're facing right now as a nation, as a world. But ultimately, Jesus didn't die for a temporary solution. He didn't die for a temporary hope. His, his mind was fixed eternally on what God was gonna do through his coming kingdom. That's why that line sticks out to me in verse 21. I don't know if it does for you. Like the fact that Paul says, if I, don't, if I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness to be gained through the law, ultimately what that means is Christ died for nothing. If I settle for temporary hopes, what ends up happening is I, I void out what Jesus really died for, the sacrifice and the beautiful act of forgiveness and love that the cross is. The cross is. See, one of the things that happened to me, like I don't know if this ever happens to you, I kind of grew up in a church environment. So I read the Bible sometimes thinking it's kind of in this other world, but not my real world. Does anyone ever face this? Like you're reading a story and you're like, that doesn't feel like Byron Center 2022. Like this feels like so far away from my context. Did this even happen? 
And, and sometimes I get tricked into doing that with the cross. Like we talk about redemption, but let me remind all of us and remind John too, that Jesus didn't die a pretend death. Jesus didn't uh, bleed pretend drops of blood. Jesus didn't agonize in prayer before his heavenly father in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, pretending to be stressed or pretending to ask the father, is there any other way? Jesus didn't have pretend nails. Jesus didn't have pretend Roman soldiers. Jesus didn't face a pretend kind of asphyxiation by hanging on the cross the way he did. There was a cost to the cross. And ultimately, if you and I want to find real hope, it's going to cost us something too, which is a very unpopular thing to say. <laughs> but I believe that's true. There are things that have to die and be sacrificed in our own lives for us to find the true hope that Jesus offers. It is not super easy. It's not super clean. Jesus called his disciples, and what, what was his thing? He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then almost every verse, the line is, and they left their nets or left their security blanket behind and followed Jesus. They followed this rabbi around, not knowing what the future was going to hold, but they knew the call was to lay something down, to die to themselves, to die to their own hope. Uh, how many of you have ever been a part of a gym? Just real quick, if you're online, you can just throw up the emoji. Okay, so a lot of us, interestingly, I'm not, I, I shouldn't say that, not interestingly, you're all very fit people is what I meant to say by that. I'm actually surprised that, no, that not all of us raised our hands, what I should have said. But how many of you, I'm going to show a quick picture. How many of you can identify what gym this is? Even if you've never been there, just show up the, the picture here. Anyone have a guess what gym that is? Planet Fitness, okay? Some of us may be members at, at said establishment. I found some really interesting things about Planet Fitness. I, I, this is maybe a, a tangent, but we're going there. Uh, the Planet Fitness business model to me is fascinating, okay? It's absolutely fascinating. And I say this as someone who, for the last eight years, has been an on and off Planet Fitness member. And so you kind of know where I'm at right there by just giving it away. I'm on and off. We've moved and, and done different gyms, done different things. Do you know every like average Planet Fitness, in terms of their blueprint, their square footage, can fit about 300 people at one time? 300 people. Now, I don't know if I've ever even seen 300 people on a Planet Fitness, but that's how much can the capacity in terms of the equipment and the rooms that they can actually hold. Any guesses how many members a typical Planet Fitness has on their role? Just a, a wild guess. So just literally throw me some numbers. Like, I heard 1,000. Somebody else. 5,000? Okay. Anybody? Any other guesses? Okay. The average Planet Fitness has 6,500 people on their membership role. Okay? Now, I'm not the most brilliant person in the room. A lot of you are smarter than me. I'm looking at 300 capacity. I'm looking at 6,500 people on the membership role. If those people all showed up at the same time, it would be a cluster, fire hazard, crazy, not safe environment for any of us to be in. Like that would be an alarming moment, which is interesting. You look at gyms across the U.S., around 67% of gym memberships are used. So that means the majority are not used, okay? Just, again, quick math. Like the majority of gym memberships are active. People have them withdrawn from their account or they send a check or they go and pay it or whatever, and they don't ever actually use the equipment or show up to the gym. Now, why is that? Well, as you read about Planet Fitness's business model, they are appealing specifically around 
uh, times of the year, like New Year's or guess who sponsors like New Year's Eve, like that's Planet Fitness almost every single year recently because they're catering their business model to people that will not show up. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm dead serious. This, you can find this. They're literally saying, we are chasing out. We have bagels for them. We have pizza for them. We want people to go that we know probably won't show up on a regular basis. Because if they did, we'd have an enormous problem on our hands. But they know we can only hold about 300, but we've got at least 6,000 plus people who are paying us money every single month in the form of their membership. Now, Planet Fitness last year made around $580 million off people like me. Okay, so, and maybe people like you, like they had memberships and they, there were seasons where they didn't ever show up. Now, why that's so interesting to me and how that even closely relates, why do I tell you all that? Is because the shocking thing about a Planet Fitness membership is the reason they have all that money, the reason they have way more people signed up and way less people actually show up is you don't feel the cost. You don't feel it. 10 bucks, I don't really feel that. And, and it's imaginary too, right? It just, like out of my direct deposit into their bank account, I don't ever register that even happened. It was like, wow, I, did, I just don't, I don't feel it. And that's kind of how it is. When you settle for temporary hopes in this life, you do not feel the cost, but there is a cost. And when you choose to take on the hope of Christ, the hope that is eternal, the hope that will give you a future and a destiny and, and, and be able to live into your calling and live into the image of God that he placed within every single person you've ever met, there is a cost to that too. And the cost is, will you die? See, the sooner I die to my own hope, the sooner I encounter true hope. See, what happens is we, we settle for cheap hope. We settle for temporary hopes. We settle for uh, small, simple solutions that ultimately do not Last, but cheap hope would have been absolutely foreign to, to the writers uh, of these letters. I mean, Paul, the majority of his letters, what are they written in? It's not a, a writer's room or a library. They're written in, written in a prison. Why is that? How, how could he say what he says about hope and endurance and suffering and the love of God and the cross in letters like Romans or what we just read in Galatians 2? Because ultimately, Paul's hope was not in in his external circumstances or the, the relationships he had or the status he held in his community was ultimately in the cross. See, cheap hope would have been absolutely foreign to the early church. You read the first couple hundred years of church history, it is bloody. It is not glamorous. And yet what happens is over and over again, the message spreads and finds new life in all these different areas beyond even the Roman Empire. You know, that's still true though. Like cheap hope, this very simple temporary hope that's, that's based on external, circ, external circumstances is completely foreign right now to, to the church gathered in Ukraine. Cheap hope is completely foreign to small underground churches that meet in living rooms across China. Cheap hope is foreign to the number over and over again of missionaries who have given their lives as they spread the gospel message around the unreached world. See, there's a cost to the hope of Christ. And, and what it ultimately means is that you and I have to decide, will we die to our own hope chasing, to our own pursuits, to our own performance spiritually? And that's a hard message. And yet the cross, literally Paul says, it's a stumbling block. It, 
It ruins the ways that we think spiritual life should work. It flips them upside down and says, if you want to truly have life, you have to be willing to lay down your life. It's interesting we're talking about the cross and, and all of this one Sunday away from making the jump to two services. Because ultimately, all, what all of us will collectively feel is there's a cost to two services. There's a cost to that. There's more time. There's more sacrifice. There's more commitment. Uh, for, for context, I was talking with Brad Vanderson, who's a pastor of New Life down in Wayland, and he was saying, just so you know, John, you had as many kids in your kids' ministry as we did last week, and we're like two and a half times bigger than you. I was like, okay, that got my attention. I did not, that puts it in perspective for me. Some of you have been in New Life. It's like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Like the average kid right now has about 12.9 square feet in those rooms with how many kids are going. My kid takes up the whole room when she's in there by herself. So I can't even imagine. Like it is not the most fun place to serve, and yet God is blessing and moving in that. And I, I think there is a cost, yet the, the ability to spread hope at a level we've never spread is also on the table. It's also there. That there are young families who right now are sitting at home who have situations in which they feel hopeless. And by making this step, by making this jump, by willing to be willing to sacrifice and, and to stretch ourselves, they will receive hope. That, that some of you may invite them and they will come and their kids will have an experience or they will have an experience that, that allows them to encounter the true hope of Jesus in a different way than they ever have before. Uh, one of the stories that for me sets the trajectory for this is, is people I've gotten to know over the last couple of years. Their name is Mark and Jen, and they both serve in different ways. Mark was up here earlier. Uh, these are their insanely cute kids, uh, some of them on the screen. But I remember talking to Mark. We had lunch. Uh, it was when everything was closed. So literally, I remember having lunch with him. It was like we got takeout Thai food sitting at a Starbucks as it was raining. It was like the most unideal lunch meeting ever. I'm amazed that he actually wanted to have lunch again. But we were sitting there talking back and forth about it and talking about, like, what kind of drew you to center? Like, what was the thing? And something stood out to me that he said. He said, we were kind of disconnected from church, looking for church, praying that God was open the doors for, for the right place. We drove by your signs. You guys were meeting in the parking lot of Byron Center Christian School at the time. Like, we probably thought you were crazy, and, and you're kind of right. Like, we probably are a little crazy. But, but I remember something he said. He said, what we really had prayed for and what we were asking God to just show us is that there would be a place, not only that our family could grow and connect and mature in Jesus, but a place that we could invite our neighbors as well. A place that our other friends from school and our neighborhood and, and the sports stuff were involved in or whatever, that we could invite them and there would be room for them too. And so do we make decisions like this because we feel like it or because John Gravett likes getting up an hour earlier or I don't know, like there's so many reasons that you can say that's why we're doing it. But really what we're doing is for more stories like that. It's for more people to encounter the hope of Jesus. And, and this is Paul and Peter's dilemma here in Galatians. See, this is why he can say, if I'm crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but he lives in me. It's his hope at work in my life. It's why Paul can write things like one of my favorite passages is, is Romans 5. And towards the middle or first and middle parts of Romans 5, he says, ultimately what happens in life, this is the way life goes spiritually. You encounter suffering. If you push through suffering, you encounter endurance. And as you encounter endurance, you encounter hope. And hope does not disappoint us for the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. So, so to me, Paul understands the cost of hope. And at the end of that, 
what ultimately happens is you encounter the love of Christ even more. It makes us the kind of cross-centered people that God designs us to be. Here's where the rubber kind of meets the road for me. I was in a meeting on Monday, and uh, together, some of you know kind of our, our, our Zero Collective Network, kind of these four churches working together in this, in this kind of West Michigan region to just see zero lives unchanged by Jesus Christ. We were meeting together, and there's a group of pastors who every couple months we get together and just say, hey, let's discern, God, where are you leading? What do you want us to talk about? Like, hopefully you know that I don't ever just get up here and say what John Gorette feels like saying, but really we try to say, how do you, how do you communicate, God, through our mouth what you want to say to to our churches, to our people. And so we get together, and one of the first things we do, like the first hour uh, would look very unproductive to you if you just sat in. Because literally, it's the first hour, so we get together and we just say, how can we be praying for you? And we go around the circle. There's five of us right now, and we go around the circle and share. So we were sharing, and I said, you know, for me, it's really, like, I feel like our family's kind of been under a cloud, like heavy weight, like our Lennon's been sick a bunch. Lindsay's been sick. I've been sick. I still feel kind of sick. Like just kind of 75% of who we think we really should be. Like that's how, how I describe it. So we keep going around the circle and every other pastor begins to share something very similar. And we've been running together for a few years. So it's very vulnerable. It's very honest. And we get to the end of the circle and it's Pastor Brian's turn. And he is kind of the lead pastor of the Zero Collective, but also Frontline Church right now. And and he just shared, you know, it's really interesting, guys. I think we need to pause here because you're all sharing about how you feel exhausted or your kids are sick or you're tired or you don't feel like you have what it takes to, to lead in the next season or lead what needs to happen for the future of, of each individual church. But do you know that weakness, and you could probably insert for me the word maybe hopelessness, feeling that like you're at the end of yourself, ultimately is an invitation from God to trust him more. It's an invitation from God. Psalm 2.12 says that, that blessed, happy are all those who take refuge in God, are all those who run to him when, when the problems crush in, that they do not try to say, I guess that hope path doesn't work. Let me try this one. Let me try that one. They just say, you know what? God, I have no hope but you. And the sooner John Gorvette dies to that my own hope, the sooner I can encounter true hope. He said, I, I think this is an invitation. And so I want to ask you, in your world, with all the things you face, with all the situations going on in your family, in your job, in your school, with your youngest kid, I want to ask you, when you think about hope, when you think about what you need, what needs to be crucified, to use Paul's language here, in you this year? What pursuit, what addiction, what relationship, what social media channel, <laughs> I don't know what it is, what needs to be crucified in, in you this year? And the answer to that question is the only thing between you and finding true hope in Jesus right now. It's the only thing. It's not about exterior law keeping. It's not about spiritual behavior and performance. That, that's what Paul and Peter are going back and forth on, right? But the sooner you get to the answer of that question, the sooner you and I will encounter real, lasting, eternal hope. Can I be frank? That's what I want for all of us. That's what Jesus wants for all of us, is not to just live in this constant cycle of sin and addiction and bondage and vain hope chasing, 
but to take on the hope that the cross brings to us, that there is a God who's not run from the suffering in your life, who's not run from the problems, who's not run from your imperfections and say, wait, do you get that figured out? Then I'll give you some hope. The opposite is true. He actually invites you to bring all of those things to him. And the cross stands there as an example that he will go to the furthest extent to show you his love and to show you his hope in your life. And so I don't know the answer to that question for you. I, I don't, I can't, I can't sit here and kind of for every single one of us give you and prescribe the right thing. But what I can do is ask the Holy Spirit to do that and ask Jesus to, to keep doing that work in you. Some of you are sitting there, you're like, I already know. I already know, you don't need to keep going. Like you can be done. I already know the answer. And some of you is gonna take some time, take some digging, may take some counseling to get there. And that's fine. But what needs to be crucified in you this year, friends, the sooner you and I die to our own hope, the sooner we encounter true hope. And so I'd love to pray for you. And then we're gonna sing and create some of that space, give you a chance to respond and, and to listen to what the, the Spirit wants to do in your life. So Jesus, we come before you. And man, I think about, just like Bryce said earlier, this this week has been challenging for us. Maybe for us, it's it's internal. Maybe it's just looking at the at the weight of all the things happening in the world or just being crushed by hopelessness in our, in our internal or in our mind. And so Jesus, my prayer is that you would help us to encounter just a little bit for ourselves today, the radical and beautiful and sobering message of the cross that in order for us to truly encounter hope, there are things in us that need to die. There are things in us that we need to be honest about. There are things in us that we need to confess or be vulnerable or turn from. And I thank you that you do not sit there with arms crossed waiting for us to figure it all out before you offer us true and lasting hope. But your invitation is right where we are, right at the other end of that question. You are there with open arms, always loving, always chasing always ready to extend extra mercy and grace. I thank you for that, Jesus. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the reminder it is that, that in the darkest moments of our life, what we know, don't need is better attempts at, at securing hope for ourselves, but it's standing right where we are and just proclaiming your name, proclaiming your cross and your message, speaking Jesus into those situations. And so I ask that for, for me, for my friends here, for those watching online now or, or even later, I pray that you would stir that work in us and we surrender to you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Church, would you stand as we respond together?